Section 46 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13, Henry VIII, by James Gardner, Part 3. Meanwhile, the king had fallen on a new device to force the pope's hand a meeting of notable persons was called on june twelve to draw up a joint address to his holiness urging him to decide the cause in henry's favour lest they should be driven to take the matter into their own hands to obtain subscriptions to this the nobles were separately dealt with and the document was sent down into the country to obtain the signatures and seals of peers and prelates among others of wolsey at southwell it was finally dispatched on july thirteen and clement though he might well have felt indignant at this attempt to influence his judicial decision by threats made on september twenty seven a remarkably temperate reply he had moreover a few months before sent to england a nuncio named nicholas del burgo to smooth matters and the prospect of justice to catherine was not improved by this perpetual dallying bishop fisher however was most assiduous in writing books to support her cause so much so that archbishop warham awed by the king's authority called him to his house one day and earnestly but in vain besought him to retract nevertheless inhibitions came from rome which it was believed made the king at one time really think of putting away anne boleyn this was at the beginning of the year fifteen thirty one but he recovered heart when repeated briefs seemed only to grow weaker and conscious of his power at home he sought to attain his object by breaking down the independence of the clergy from the whole body of whom he contrived to extort not only a heavy fine for a premunir which they were held to have incurred by submitting to the legatine jurisdiction of wolsey but also an acknowledgment of his being supreme head of the church of england this title was only conceded to him by the convocation of canterbury after a three days debate when it was carried at last by an artifice and with the modifying words quote, so far as the law of christ allows end quote. nor was it without protest that the northern clergy were brought to the same acknowledgment this encroachment on their liberties made the clergy of the south regret their pecuniary grant but they were altogether helpless though in the end of august their assessment led to a riotous attack on the bishop of london's palace at st paul's parliament had met on january fifteen and was kept sitting into march without doing anything material all the members were anxious to go home and the queen's friends easily got leave on march thirty it was prorogued for easter when sir thomas moore as chancellor though utterly sick of an office which he had unwillingly accepted even with the assurance that his own convictions would be respected found himself obliged to declare to the commons in order that they might check ill reports in the country 
the conscientious motives by which the king said he had been induced to seek a divorce and the opinions obtained in his favor from the greatest universities in christendom what effect this had in allaying popular indignation at the king's proceedings is very doubtful a strange occurrence in february in bishop fisher's household had produced a most unpleasant impression a number of the servants fell ill and two of them died it was found that the cook had put poison in some pottage of which happily the bishop himself had not tasted but it was generally believed his life had been aimed at by anne boleyn's friends the king however was very angry and to avert suspicion caused the parliament to pass an ex post facto law which was at once put in force visiting the crime of poisoning with the hideous penalty of being boiled alive at rome the cause hardly made any progress henry in fact though he would not appear there either personally or by proxy employed agents to delay it especially a lawyer named sir edward carne called his excusator who without showing any commission from him argued that he should not be summoned out of his realm in his protest to that effect henry had the support of francis i who urged that the cause might at least be tried at cambray and procured a decision for the king from the university of orleans that he could not be compelled to appear at rome and though the process actually began in june it was soon suspended for the roman holidays from july to october when the excusator at length produced a commission and the question about giving him a hearing next occupied the court in november this was refused until he should produce a power from the king to stand to the trial but he managed afterwards to get the question further discussed and in point of fact the whole of the following year was wasted before the principal cause was reached meanwhile catherine suffered more and more from the delay of justice on may thirty one she had to endure a conference with about thirty of the leading peers accompanied by bishops stokesley and longland and other clergymen who were sent by the king to remonstrate with her on the scandal she had caused by his being cited to rome in july she was ordered to remain at windsor while the king went about hunting with anne boleyn and when the queen sent a message after him regretting that he had not bid her farewell he sent her word in reply that he was offended with her on account of the citation after that they never met again she was ordered to withdraw to the moor in hertfordshire and afterwards to east hampstead but even then she was not free from deputations for another came to her at the moor in october to urge her once more to allow her cause to be decided in england but it was in vain they plied her with arguments which she answered with equal gentleness and firmness as she came to understand the king's mind she was more resolved than ever to have her cause decided at rome and rome was at last really moved in her behalf slow as he was to take action clement was compelled on january twenty five fifteen thirty two 
to send the king a brief of reproof for his desertion of Catherine and cohabitation with Anne Boleyn. But Henry induced the Parliament, now assembled for a new session, to pass a bill which he told the nuncio was passed against his will by the commons out of their great hatred to the pope for abolishing the payment of first fruits to rome this act however it was left in the king's power to suspend till the pope met his wishes and how little the commons acted spontaneously in such matters may be seen by what speedily followed on march eighteen the speaker and a deputation of that body waited on the king to complain of a number of grievances to which the laity were subjected by the prelates and ordinaries and which they desired the king would remedy but with this petition they at the same time begged for a dissolution of parliament considering the excessive cost they had sustained by long attendance the king replied that their second request was inconsistent with their first they must wait for the answer of the ordinaries to their complaints and meanwhile he desired their assent to a very unpopular bill about wardships which he had persuaded the lords to pass but he could not get the commons to agree to it parliament was prorogued for ten days at easter on easter day march thirty one william peto provincial of the grey friars preached before the king at greenwich a sermon in which he pointed out how kings were encouraged in evil by false counsellors after the sermon being called to a private interview peto further warned the king that he was endangering his crown as both small and great disapproved of his designs the king dissembled his ill-will and licensed peto to leave the kingdom on his duties after which he caused dr richard kerwin a chaplain of his own to preach in the same place a sermon of an opposite tenor in this kerwin not only contradicted what peto had said in the pulpit but added that he wished peto were there to answer him on which the warden of the convent henry elstow at once answered him in peto's place peto was then recalled by the king who asked him to deprive the warden but he refused and both he and elstow were committed to prison when parliament met again in april the commons were solicited for aid in the fortification of the scotch frontier they objected to the expense and two members said boldly that the borders were secure enough if the king would only take back his queen and live in peace with the emperor for without foreign aid the scots could do no harm on the thirtieth the king sent for the speaker and others of the commons and delivered to them the answer of the ordinaries to their complaints which he said he did not think would satisfy them but he would leave them to consider it and would himself be an indifferent judge between them in such strange fashion did he declare his impartiality on may eleven he sent for them again and said that he had discovered that the clergy were but half his subjects since the bishops at their consecration took an oath at variance with the one they took to him after some references to and fro 
the final result was the famous submission of the clergy agreed to on may fifteen and presented to the king at westminster on the following day hereby they agreed to enact no new ordinances without royal license and to submit to a committee of sixteen persons one half laymen and one half clerics the question as to what ordinances should be annulled as inconsistent with god's laws and those of the realm on that same day sir thomas more who had done his best to prevent these innovations surrendered his office of chancellor from which he had long sought in vain to be released to fill his place in some respects thomas audley the speaker was at first appointed keeper of the great seal but in the following january received the full title and office of lord chancellor henry's way was now tolerably clear and on june twenty three fifteen thirty two he made a secret alliance with francis i for mutual aid against the emperor when it should be required francis for his part delighted in the belief that to gratify an insane passion henry had put himself completely in his hands henry however was really using him to ward off excommunication which if pronounced francis informed the pope he would resent as deeply as henry himself and to give greater effect to the threat henry persuaded him to an interview the only professed object of which the concerting of measures against the turk was not only seen to be a pretense but was meant to be seen through it took place in october between calais and boulogne with much less pomp than the field of cloth of gold twelve years before but the various meetings lasted over a week and made an effective demonstration and to counteract this the emperor arranged a meeting with the pope which took place at bologna in december anne boleyn of course crossed with henry to the meetings with francis who was found ready to dance with her she had been created marchioness of pembroke on september one and imperialists were relieved to find that henry had not yet married her clement was compelled to warn the king by another brief on november fifteen to put her away on pain of excommunication towards the close of the year the earl of northumberland invaded the scotch border and a state of war continued between the two countries for some months but led to no great results another event favored henry's aims archbishop warham who had striven hard to maintain the old privileges of the clergy died in august henry at once proposed to name as his successor thomas cranmer who had been so useful in suggesting the appeal to the universities he had lately sent him as ambassador to the emperor with secret messages to the german princes to gain their alliance against their sovereign this intrigue was ineffectual but he accompanied the emperor to vienna and then to mantua where in november he received his recall with a view to his approaching elevation in february fifteen thirty three bulls for his promotion were demanded of the pope who was then still at bologna in frequent conference with the emperor 
and were obtained free of payment of first fruits by the suggestion that the king if favorably dealt with had it in his power to cancel the act against first fruits generally but before this on january twenty five henry had secretly married anne boleyn and knowing her to be with child was preparing to have her openly proclaimed as queen to guard against consequences however he first obtained from convocation opinions against the pope's dispensing power in cases similar to that of catherine and then from parliament an act making appeals to rome high treason on easter eve april twelve anne went to mass in great state and was publicly named queen no sentence had yet been given by any court to release the king from his marriage with catherine but on good friday the new archbishop wrote to him of course by desire a very humble request that he would allow him to determine that weighty cause which had remained so long undecided the king willingly gave him a commission to try it and the archbishop cited him and catherine to appear before him at dunstable a place carefully selected as being conveniently out of the way there on may twenty three sentence was given of the nullity of the king's first marriage and five days later at lambeth a very secret enquiry was held before thomas cromwell and others as to the validity of the king's marriage with anne boleyn of course it was pronounced valid though the very date of the event was uncertain and all the details were kept a profound secret anne was crowned at westminster on whitsunday june one with all due state but with no appearance of popular enthusiasm then another deputation was sent to catherine now at ampthill to inform her that she was no longer queen and must henceforth bear the name of princess dowager but she refused to submit to such a degradation sentence of excommunication was pronounced against henry at rome on july eleven but even now he was allowed until the end of september to set himself right before the sentence should be declared openly by taking back his wife and putting away anne boleyn this troubled his ally francis more than himself for the pope was coming to france for an interview at which he hoped to make henry's peace this interview indeed had been planned with henry's own approval the policy then being to make the pope feel that he must look to france and england to save him from the necessity of holding a general council at the emperor's bidding but henry now completely changed his tone and endeavored to dissuade francis from meeting the pope at all which however francis was bent on doing in order to arrange the marriage which afterwards took place of his son henry duke of orleans with the pope's niece catherine de medici he met the pope at marseilles in october but while they were both there still in november dr edmund bonner a skilful agent of the king who had followed clement from rome intimated to his holiness an appeal on henry's behalf to the next general council against the sentence of excommunication next month the king's council at home came to a resolution that the pope should henceforth be designated merely 
bishop of rome and during the following year written acknowledgments were extorted from bishops abbeys priories and parochial clergy all over the kingdom that the roman pontiff had no more authority than any foreign bishop the policy which the king had now been pursuing for four successive years had been inspired by thomas cromwell who as we have seen had been in wolsey's service he was a man of humble origin who after a roving youth spent in italy and elsewhere had risen by the use of his wits and since his master's fall had now been for three years a privy councillor in fifteen thirty four he was made the king's chief secretary and a few months later master of the rolls but even in august fifteen thirty three he had directed cranmer as archbishop to examine one elizabeth barton commonly called the nun of canterbury or the holy maid of kent who had long professed to have visions and trances afterwards he examined her himself and committed her and a number of her friends to prison she had uttered fearful warnings to the king in the case of his marrying anne boleyn and efforts were made to prove that she had been encouraged by catherine's friends it was even sought to implicate catherine herself but no case could be made out against her the charge was more plausible against bishop fisher who had certainly communicated with her in previous years but only in order to test her pretensions which found wide credit even with people of high standing his name and at first that of sir thomas more likewise were included in a bill of attainder against the nun's adherents but sir thomas entirely cleared himself and the charge against the bishop amounted only to misprision ultimately the nun and six others were attainted of treason and afterwards executed at tyburn while the bishop and five more were found guilty of misprision of treason and were sentenced to forfeiture of goods on march twenty three fifteen thirty four the pope pronounced henry's marriage with catherine valid while parliament in england was passing an act of succession in favor of anne boleyn's issue her daughter elizabeth had been born in september fifteen thirty three orders were circulated throughout the kingdom to arrest preachers who maintained the pope's authority and to put the country in a state of defence in case the emperor should attempt invasion the king's subjects generally were required to swear to the act of succession and those who refused were sent to the tower sir thomas more and bishop fisher among the first then to prevent inconvenient preaching the different orders of friars were placed under two provincials appointed by the king but the grey friars observance declined the articles proposed to them by these visitors as contrary to their obedience to the pope whereupon some were sent to the tower and soon afterwards the whole order was suppressed it was fortunate for henry that on may eleven this year he was able to make a peace with his nephew james v which relieved him from the danger of a papal interdict being executed by means of an invasion from scotland just about the same time william lord dock who for nine years past had ruled the west marches as his father had done before him was committed to the tower on a charge of treason 
arising apparently out of border feuds. He was tried in July and, strange to say, acquitted, for such a result of an indictment was then quite unheard of, and the joy of the people at the event was all the greater, because it was known that Anne Boleyn had been using her influence against him as one who sympathized with Catherine. But a more serious danger now appeared in Ireland. Gerald, Earl of Kildare, the Lord Deputy, who had used the King's artillery for his own castles, had been summoned to England in 1533, but delays ensued, and he only arrived in London in the spring of 1534, suffering from a wound that he had received in an encounter and not likely to live long. He was not at first imprisoned, and efforts were made to lure his son, Lord Thomas Fitzgerald, over to England. But the young man, deceived, it is said, by a false report of his father's execution, rebelled, declaring that he upheld the Pope's cause, and that the king's adherents were accursed. He murdered Archbishop Allen of Dublin, the Chancellor of Ireland, July 28, as he was endeavouring to sail for England, and became for a short time virtual ruler of the country, which he ordered all the English to quit on pain of death. Piers Butler, Earl of Ossory, however, made a stand for the king at Waterford, and Lord Thomas was compelled to raise the siege laid by him to Dublin, when Sir William Skeffington, appointed a second time as Lord Deputy, arrived from Wales in October, after which matters began to mend. In England, to complete the work of the year, Parliament met in November, and passed, among other legislation, acts for confirming the king's title as supreme head of the church, for granting him the first-fruits and tenths before paid to the Pope, and for attainting Moore and Fisher of misprision and the Earl of Kildare of treason. But Parliament passed measures at dictation, and several of the chief lords of England were in secret communication with the imperial ambassador Chapuis to urge the emperor to invade England. Cromwell was now appointed the king's vicar-general in spiritual things, and in the spring of 1535 the act of supremacy began to be put into execution. An oath to the succession of Anne Boleyn's issue had already been extorted in the previous year from the monks of the Charter House, which some of them seem not to have taken until after a significant visit from one of the London sheriffs. But now they were required to swear to the supremacy in derogation of the Pope's authority. Prior Hofton, with two other priors of the order who had lately come up to London, approached Cromwell at the rolls in the hope of obtaining some mitigation of the terms required. But unconditional acknowledgment of the king's supremacy was insisted on. All three refused, and repeated their refusal a few days later in the tower. They were tried in April, together with Dr. Reynolds of the Brigantine Monastery of Sion, who, having been also committed to the tower, had joined in their refusal and all received sentence together. With them also were condemned, for a private conversation about the king's tyranny and licentiousness, John Hale, vicar of Isleworth, and a young priest named Robert Ferron. 
but the latter had his pardon after sentence, having turned King's evidence. All the others were hanged at Tyburn on May 4, with even more than the usual barbarities. Next came the turn of Bishop Fisher and Sir Thomas More, who, with three fellow prisoners, Dr. Wilson, Abel, and Featherstone, priests, lately most intimate in the royal household, were warned that they must swear to the statutes both of succession and supremacy. All declined to do so. Six weeks were given them to consider the matter, and visits were paid by Cromwell and other councillors to Moore and Fisher in the Tower to shake their constancy, but all in vain. Fisher denied that the king was supreme head of the Church of England. Moore said he would not meddle with such questions. Fisher was condemned on June 17 and was beheaded on Tower Hill on the 22nd. The king was all the more resolved on his death because the pope had made him a cardinal on May 20. On July 1, Moore was brought up for trial on a complex indictment, one article of which showed that he did not, like Fisher, expressly repudiate the king's ecclesiastical supremacy, but only kept silence when questioned about it. He made, as might be expected, an admirable defense, but in vain. And after his condemnation, he declared frankly as to the statute that it was against his conscience, as he could never find in all his studies that a temporal lord ought to be the head of the spiritualty. He was sentenced to undergo a traitor's death at Tyburn, but it was commuted by the king to a simple decapitation on Tower Hill, where he suffered on July 6. These executions filled the world with horror, both at home and abroad. The emperor, Charles V, is said to have declared that he would rather have lost the best city in his dominions than such a counsellor as Sir Thomas More. In Italy, More was vehemently lamented, and men related with admiration the touching devotion of his daughter Margaret Roper, who broke through the guards to embrace him on his way to the tower. He was indeed a man to inspire affection far beyond his own family circle. Full of domestic feeling, yet no less full of incomparable wit and humor, dragged into the service of the court against his will on account of his high legal abilities and intellectual gifts, he had refused to yield one inch to solicitations against the cause of right and conscience. A true saint, without a touch of austerity, save that which he practiced on himself in secret, he lived in the world as one who understood it perfectly, with a breadth of view and an innate cheerfulness of temper which no external terrors could depress. Of a mind altogether healthy, he was not beguiled by superstition, or corrupted by gifts, but held his course straight on. Brought up in the household of Cardinal Morton, he had early devoted himself to learning, and became the special friend of Erasmus. His learning was entirely without pedantry, even as his humor was without gall. He loved men, he loved animals, he loved mechanism and every influence that tended to humanize or advance society. 
he had served his king in diplomatic missions with an ability that was fully appreciated and as lord chancellor with an integrity that was noted as altogether exceptional but his very probity had made him at last an obstacle in the king's path and he was sacrificed the three priests who had refused to acknowledge the supremacy were retained in confinement two years later dr wilson received a pardon the other two remained steadfast during five years imprisonment and were executed in fifteen forty pope paul the third who had conferred the hat upon fisher he had succeeded clement the seventh in the previous year would have issued a bull to deprive henry of his kingdom but owing to the mutual jealousies of the emperor and francis i there was no sovereign who dared to execute the sentence henry moreover had been scheming for years with the citizens of lubeck to fill the throne of denmark with one who would unite with him and the northern powers of europe against both pope and emperor and though his plan was a failure the Danes elected a Lutheran king, Christian III, ill-pleasing to Charles V. Further, the English king was seeking to conclude a league with the German Protestants, and his intrigues gave the emperor some anxiety. During the latter half of 1535, the bishops in England were inhibited from visiting their diocese pending a royal visitation of the whole kingdom while cromwell sent out special visitors for the monasteries who with remarkable celerity traversed the greater part of the country in a very few months and sent private reports of gross immoralities alleged to have been discovered in a number of the houses they visited it is impossible for many reasons to attach much credit to these reports or to think highly of the character of the visitors the object was seen when parliament met again in february fifteen thirty six and passed as the principal measure of the session an act for the dissolution of such monasteries as had not revenues of two hundred pounds a year it was passed as tradition in the next generation reported under very strong pressure and certainly as the preamble shows on the king's own statement of the results of the visitation these it was said proved that the smaller monasteries were given to vicious living while the larger were better regulated though in truth the visitors had reported abominations quite as flagrant in the latter as in the former meanwhile in january catherine of aragon had died at kimbleton on hearing of the event henry could not help exclaiming god be praised we are now free from fear of war if catherine had lived the bull of privation might even yet have been launched when the emperor arrived at rome in the spring but the king calculated truly the court and anne boleyn wore mourning for catherine but anne's own fate was near at hand for henry had long since grown tired of her and could not make men respect her he now said that he had been induced to marry her by witchcraft in the course of the month she miscarried on may day there was a tournament at greenwich during which the king suddenly left her and went to westminster next day she was apprehended and taken to the tower one mark smeaton groom of the chamber 
had been arrested and examined beforehand, and afterwards her brother George, Lord Roquefort, and three other courtiers were likewise placed in the tower. Anne was charged with acts of adultery with them all. She protested her innocence, though she acknowledged some familiarities. On the 15th, she and her brother were condemned, and the latter suffered two days later with the four other supposed paramours. On the 17th, a secret enquiry was conducted by persons learned in the canon law, after which Cranmer pronounced her marriage with the king invalid. On the 19th, she was beheaded on Tower Green. For some time before her arrest, the king had been secretly talking of matrimony with Jane, daughter of Sir John Seymour of Walthall, Wiltshire. On the very day of Anne's execution, Cranmer gave the king a dispensation for this new match, and on the next day the couple were secretly betrothed. On Ascension Day, however, May 25, the king wore white as a widower in mourning, and it was not till Whit Sunday, June 4, that Jane was openly produced as queen, having been married the week before. End of section 46 Recording by Linda Johnson